Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Today's guest is the fashion designer Gabriella Hurst. Raised on a working sheep farm in Uruguay, her New York-based label, which is big on sustainability, has inspired a generation of fans passionate about the provenance as well as the look of their clothing. We sat down at Five Carlos Place in London to talk about her extraordinary upbringing, the success of her non-it bag, and the biodegradable fabric she and her husband helped develop as an alternative to plastic clothing covering. Gabriella, hi. Hi, hello. It's really lovely to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Welcome to Five Carlos Place. I think you flew in to London this morning. Yes, indeed. <laughs> you feeling okay? Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> I had enough caffeine and matcha latte and, you know, some chocolate. Raring to go. Ready to go, for sure. So we're here at Five Carlos Place in, in, in London. And the reason is because you have designed well you, you you are a designer that sold on matchesfashion.com and you're having a special residency here at five carlos place do you want to explain to people who might not know about it a bit about what you're doing here so when matches approach us um to do a, a residency i thought it was a great opportunity because we are um, a small luxury brand um, and we have a particular vision on uh, for what luxury is for us and we have a non-compromise approach to materials and we've just used the most premium materials that we can find and the craftsmanship and it is and i've experienced it with our store in uh, new york that we just opened in uh, november um we have a lot of uh um it's it's a lot of traffic and revenue are coming from our retail store more than our e-com for example because it's the type of product that you need to touch and experience um, which is not just a visual impact it's just you'd see the dimension of the product and the quality of the people that have done the yarn and the material and the fabric and the cloth and the finishing and that it's very hard to translate so I was very excited about having a opportunity to show in a space like Carlos Place, like Five Carlos Place in Mayfair, which is it's such a beautiful uh, part of town. It's it's quite stunning. Like you, you know, New York. I love New York, and I'm living there for 20 years, and it's my town for sure. But it doesn't have this historical architectural beauty that you have here. It's very special. Um, and the I think your resort collection is here, but also the handbags and the handbags aren't. There's a special way that you sell them. Mm -hmm. um, they're not available to buy online. And no. you tend, I think they're made to order. Yeah. Um, and normally people can buy them only through your store. You can buy them physically. Right now you can only buy them through our store. And then you can um, 
put your request online and sometimes we have stock on the bag and sometimes we don't depending and what we did with matches because um, a lot of people haven't really seen them in person so we we um, are showcasing our Mitchell which is our uh, Tiffin inspired uh, handbag and we have some of our special uh, handbags in the private suite for uh, clients to experience them mm. but they cannot buy them and take them they get to see them um, do you want to just quickly explain what you mean by Tiffin to people Tiffin, who might yes. not know what that is? So um, I was fascinated by the the food uh, delivery system in, in India, the Tiffin, and, and, and you know, Harvard made a study on it, and it, apparently it's like people don't even know how it functions, but it functions. And so I like this idea of a bag. So I have two bags inspired with this concept, and one is Johnny and the other one is Mitchell because they're always named after female singers so <laughs> Mitchell is here and so it's a it's it's a compartmentalizing bag that you can separate in different blocks and it becomes a clutch so in the it I thought it was an interesting metaphor to our lives that we live right now where it's like you know you have your uh, info tech cable yeah, telephone compartmentalizing yeah, everything and then you yeah. have like your makeup or your lip gloss or your beauty product that you need and then you like mm. your credit card and whatever key you know so you can separate and it's made by the same people that do jewelry boxes so yeah mm. and the, and it's i mean the handbags are beautiful but um i think they are they're, they're especially interesting um because you in a in a climate where it bags and bags in general are sort of being superseded by things like a smartphone mm -hmm. and tend to not really be such a thing as they were, say, for example, at the beginning of the 2000s. Mm -hmm. um, you've created these bags that have become um, famous and lusted after and coveted. And I know that recently people will definitely know what I mean if I say that they've been photographed on people like Meghan Markle and Oprah Winfrey. And there's been this whole sort of um, celebrity element, which is quite fun. Um, but then, of course, there's a whole sustainability angle. Um, so I think it's just very interesting at this time to talk about these handbags, which is why we're yeah. talking at them at such great length at the beginning yeah. of the podcast. But we're going to come to all those themes later yeah. on. Well, the handbag in our uh, business, we do everything ready to wear, shoes, handbags. Uh, now we're doing jewellery and the jewellery and the handbags, they're created in the same um style in the sense of the way I do it is very different from the way that I design ready to wear and shoes, which I, I do proper collections. With the handbags, I can spend, you know, 10 months developing one style. I don't do handbag collections. I, they come to life like one has children, basically. Yeah. Like, it takes me like, you know, a good period of time to, to get it right and to we really work very, um, because they're not, usual you know they have different ways they they click and they open and they have different um engineering and i think that uh i like that that part of our business is very free and you know i never wanted to um wholesale them or have it in retail partners because i i didn't want to feel the pressure of having to come up with collections all the time i rather come up with things i'm very passionate about it and somehow that became a good business model but then the other thing for us is that when i saw a wholesale plan it made, meant that i needed to sell double the amount of handbags to make the same type of money and that just didn't make sense from a natural resources point of view where we are 
taking the natural resources from this planet. So I basically, I rather sell, um, you know, less than direct, basically. Mm. And I, I read a story, and I don't know whether it's a, um, apocryphal or not, but I read that um, Johnny Ive from Apple stopped you. Uh, when I was with a prototype. Yes, uh, is that uh, true? And, yeah, me, the Claridge's. Tell me the story. He, we were, I thought it was a sign because I basically designed my first handbag because my friend was keep, kept on telling me you cannot have a full collection and ha carry someone else's bag. And I was like, that's an interesting point. So I did the bag that I wanted to carry around. And I thought very innocently that I was gonna do 25 to a limited edition of 25. So I worked in the prototype kind of very easy and free without a timeline pressure. And I was walking around with that prototype actually four years ago, I think. Oh yeah, three years ago. And um, and that was the Nina. Yeah, that was the Nina, and it was in. I was in the elevator at Claridge's, and uh, he asked me. I didn't recognize him at the beginning. Um, he asked me about the bag because it opens in this interesting way, and I said to him, you know, it's my prototype, and I'm thinking of doing twenty five of them. And he gave me his card because he wanted one for his wife if I did it. So I definitely was like the ignite of like, okay, let's go do this. Yeah, so I sent him a back. That's a pretty good endorsement. Yeah, I was like, it's like, you know, he's a god of design. So if you get to um, find, he finds something curious, you're like, okay, I should do this. On this podcast, we talk about the objects that you find mm -hmm. most inspiring or mean something to you and that you would put into the cabinet in the attic here. Yeah. I was wondering, what was the first thing you wanted to talk about? Well, I, I think the, um, the book I'm currently reading that, it's probably gonna become a bestseller, like his other books. Um, is from Yuval Noah Harari, Harari, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. I think that it it's if you haven't read the other two books, uh, Sapiens and Homo Deus, I think it's a still in a very interesting read because it makes you think and puts in very interesting questions that we should be thinking about right now with the um, amount of inf information that we are receiving and the, the, how fast technology is going that we're hardly not understanding the world we're, we're, we're living right now. So it does give you food for thought, um, play, plains different scenarios, um, and really, you know, interprets, uh, you Inter he's a historian, so you should know where you come from to see where you're going. <laughs> so I think that it puts things a lot of things in perspective. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yes, we have to aspire to the best of our uh, abilities. <laughs> How do you find time to read? Do you deliberately put time aside in your day or do you yeah, just... Yeah, no, I, I, I read whenever I can and I actually can't read from a screen. I have to read from paper. I, like my eyeballs are burnt out. <laughs> I can't look at digital stuff. It's like, it's just really, I need books. Um, I can't read from a screen. And, and so I, you know, it becomes obviously super impractical. I'm carrying books to the gym and I'm... But I try to read as much as I can because... Um, you know, it's this thing, the more you read, the more ignorant you feel. And it's yeah. like, it's, I, 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 and for all the collections that we do, I do a lot of research on things that are cu I'm curious. So each collection is an excuse for me to learn more. So it's like, it's part of my work to read. Good excuse. <laughs> yeah. So you grew up uh, on a ranch in mm -hmm. Uruguay. And I was just wondering if you could give me a flavor of what that was like. So it obviously from 
when living there, I wanted to get the hell out of there. Um, but so I grew up from age, you know, zero to five years old that they sent me to a, a British schools in Uruguay, actually. So I had quite a, a British education from age five to 17. My teachers were all from Great Britain and and but each summer I spend it in the in the ranch and my parents don't like cities. They, they really didn't. So and your school was in the city? No, my school was in the city because there was on, only rural schools. In Montevideo? So, yeah, so my, they, they sent me to, they dispatched me. They dispatched you. <laughs> to get very up, young but, to be dispatched. Yeah, but I lived with my grandmother. Um, but, you know, it was for them, my, for my mother, it was very important that I, I got a good education, which I think it's a, one of the good tools that, that it gives you to, to move through Your life. Your mother sounded like a very interesting oh, character. Oh, she is. Practicing Buddhist and... Yeah, she's a, she's quite radical. And she's she's very... I always say if she wasn't my mother, she would be my best friend. And being your mother is a little bit too much. <laughs> but she's amazing. She was a rodeo... Um, uh, and this goes back to your question of what was it growing up. Like one of the first images I have is my mother being, because she used to compete in rodeo, being thrown by a horse and she falling in the horse from the horse. And I was thinking about this memory because it just put some information in my brain, falling from the horse, her teeth coming out, bleeding, and she's holding them like this. Oh my and, I, and, and so her her presence always, the information that she gave me was always like, women are physically tough. You know, and um, which is a very and I grew kind of in a matriarchy and it was a very different messaging from the culture I was born because it's quite it was quite machist. And um, so it was a really interesting being raised by her because she did that. Then when at 30, through martial arts, because she was a she is a, a second dan taekwondo. So when you see your mother kicking like doing a flying kick over three people in a ball <laughs> and breaking a wood at the end, you know things are not normal. <laughs> You're like, okay, I'm not going to be like the rest of the people. And uh, so she was a second nun of Taekwondo and through uh, the martial arts, she discovered Buddhism, which she created a whole kind of um, people with the interest of, of Buddhism in Uruguay in the early 90s, <laughs> which was probably her and five other fellows um, uh, practicing Zen Buddhism. And she's a hardcore. Did she raise you as a Buddhist or were you? No, she, I was as... I was raised as a Catholic because it's a Catholic country. But uh, her belief system has been Buddhism since the 90s. She's always like first on all of, of everything, everything that everyone's doing now that she's like been there, you know. And uh, then she decided to do endurance races in horses. So she does these races at like 700 kilometers. And then she was into like weightlifting. So she broke the record of weightlifting over women <laughs> over 45. No, if she was born in another country, I think she would have been a professional athlete, like no doubt. Hence, I don't like exercising. <laughs> <laughs> what does she think about what you're doing now? I think she's finally getting a grasp of what I do. <laughs> And it's so funny because she, you know, she, she doesn't get impressed by the same things that people get impressed. She has a very different value system. But I think that she gets, she's basically seeing my vision kind of crystallize and, and, um, and put all the elements. And she sees myself very represented in what I do. And I think she's very proud of that. Mm. So the ranch was enormous, very big, and yeah. proper working farm with sheep. Yeah. And, and it's not only my mom, cattle. it's my mom, my stepdad, my father. It was everyone around me. This is what they did. It wasn't like 
you know there wasn't a doctor <laughs> and it's still working mm-hmm. from yeah. producing wool which you use in some of your collections yeah. yeah um what was the next piece you wanted to speak about Oh, this is actually, well, we can, we're talking about my mom. Yeah. So this is my charm necklace that uh, I have. Which you have here, I should explain. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I have it here. And so my mom would do, she would have these old gold coins and she will make a charm for me. Um, you know, once a year, once every two years, she'll make me a, like How this is a symbol. How long have you had this? I've had this for a few years now. Um, I rechained it. I had it in a more like in a more, in a thinner chain, and it, it is growing. So I need to put it in a thicker chain. So I have also not only my mom's gift. I also have my best friend gifts. I have this one that she, my best friend Stephanie, um, gave me. This is so cute. It's a, a charm that opens, and it has all the my children <gasps> and my husband and my dad. And she put herself, my best friend. Put so it's six photographs. Yeah. It's like a locket. But yeah. I, it's like yeah. a and I've, deluxe. And, and I locket. bought the jewelry book from Elizabeth Taylor and she had one exactly like that in a charm. Really? Was, yeah. And she was a, a Scorpio, I think. Or she, no, she had a Scorpio, somehow a Scorpio charm that I'm a Scorpio as well. So I have all these different symbols and gifts from people I love. So it's my lucky charm. Do you wear it? Yes, of course, I wear it a, a, a lot. You've recently just started to design jewellery. Yes. As, as yeah. part of your label. Yeah, I love jewellery and um, people have been telling me you should design jewellery, you should design jewellery. And never, it never felt the right moment till I actually saw this painting in the Prado Museum. Uh, it's called the, uh, not, like the, um, it's, it's the uh, Introduction of Christ. It's a painting from the 1500s, uh, Quentin Massey. And he, the jewelry, the men's that the jewelry that the men are wearing there are, was very very interesting, and I thought that was a good starting point. And so it's from the 1500s, so it's not really copying; it's more <laughs> yeah. inspired. inspired. <laughs> so, what was it that took you from Uruguay to New York? Uh, curiosity. And a boyfriend of mine broke up with me and I was heartbroken. It's the only time I was heartbroken. (laughs) But I had lived abroad already. I had lived um, in Australia. I had lived in Europe. I I, I liked, I always knew I was going to travel abroad. I felt that that was part of where my life was going to be. And you wanted to be an actor for a while? For, for, you know how when the people, when they receive the awards and they always described in the, oh, you know, I used to see the screen. I used to think, you know, when they win the awards and that's used to be me. I used to always look at the screen and say, that's going to be me. But then I realized I had a very thick English accent and I was (laughs) a a Spanish Latin accent (laughs) in my English. I was like, that's not going to happen. And I actually went to, uh, um, I went to performing art school. And my best in New York. In New York, and my best performance was convincing my father to pay for it—a gaucho <laughs> in the middle of New York, in the Uruguay—to like pay for her daughter to study acting in New York was a long. That was my best performance. But no kidding aside, I did train for two years, and I had very—I um, had the experience of what good actors feel all the time. But I had it just like two times. And then really good actors feel that all the time. Where what do you, you mean by good feeling? It's 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 uh, it's not a good feeling, but I mean it's like it's like you become a passenger. You're not inheriting. You're just observing. So it's really observing the character. 
yes, you just become your brain becomes an observant and you become someone else. It's very intense. Um, I experienced maybe twice that's been generous or one and a half, but that's what great actors do all the time. And it took me two years of professional training to do that. So it's it's much more intense than what people think. <laughs> and did you always have an interest in style and fashion or was that yeah. something that was ignited while you were in New York? No, I was always curious. I was always, um, I was always, you know, my mom was, there's two looks I do very good, rugged and very, and, and very kind of beautiful, elegant, yeah. because it was, you know, the, there's these country people are very, very rugged, but it's not like the same rugged as city, like cities are a bit rugged in the country is not so dirty, maybe, you know, but when they clean up, they, they dress really beautifully, you know, because it's like you're working with the land and animals. And so my mom at the time and my grandmother and my aunt, they were not fancy stores to go buy clothes. So the, the most uh, important, nice thing that you would do was to buy fabric from Europe and then you would have the seamstress make the clothes for you. So it was technically couture. So I grew up with my mom, didn't have a lot of clothes, but she had the few things she had were absolutely stunning. So I, I had like a standard for what good clothes was supposed to be. And so I'm always trying to achieve that was there yeah. any um media fashion media did you have magazines oh yeah to... there were some magazines but there was not a lot you know there, this um, we're talking pre-globalization no cable 41, early 42 40, so talking is that sort of 80s and 90s yeah of... late 70s my all my visual memories are from late 70s because a lot of the pictures uh you know from when you're a baby and everything is like this late 70s fashion that i actually really really like and then there's early 80s which you know, it was an early 80s more classic than, you know, when you think of 80s, the big hair and all that, you know, people in Uruguay were much more conservative. We just came through a dictatory period chip. So people were much more like the when I was growing up, the guys would dress the same way my father was dressing 30 years before. It was just really traditional in that way. So there's always that's there's always kind of like a uniform towards the things I do. And there's like a point of not calling too much attention. Do you know, there's like a degree yeah. of becoming interested, but, but it, yes, the, my passion for design and um, there was no design school. So I didn't even know that you could be a designer, but my, my passion for aesthetics and it was always there mm. um, for sure. And my background inspires me multiple times, all the time, const constantly. And then you launched a label in 2004. Yes, my first, uh, my, I, I started working in fashion maybe two years before that. Um, and I did, I worked with a designer and then I worked in sales and I, and then I realized, you know, I can't do this. <laughs> so we launched and um, it was pretty, you know, good from, from the start. It was a contemporary uh, brand. It was what we, it was, we started with a very limited budget. I remember putting in $700, um, which probably today is like $2,500. <laughs> but it's, it was very, very limited, but it was an exciting way to understand what we do. And, and a, a lot of the lessons people say, oh my God, you've been so successful in this, you know, past four years, but they don't understand they had like 12 years of learning, having mistakes and so, in conclusion, I'm always feeling like I'm starting. Even if I've been doing this for 14 years, I always feel like I'm, I'm starting. But mm. 
I'm one of those people that takes a long time maybe to crystallize a vision. But then with Gabriela Hurst, it was very much, I knew exactly so what I wanted to do. Your first label was called Candela. Yeah. And then you launched Gabriela yeah. Hurst. Yeah. And after, I, after my dad passed away and I inherited the ranch, so it kind of, it took me to go back to Uruguay, right? So when did he, when, when did your father pass away? He passed away in 2011 and I took over the ranch. And the, taking over the ranch because we produce grass-fed, organic, um, the merino wool and the values that they are there and the, how things are made and there's a cycle for everything. You can't rush things. Things are how they are. And there's a big contrast with what I was doing in New York with Candela. So you, if I wanted to do a luxury brand. It was like a big dream of mine to do that. And I was never like, tempted to go back and run the ranch. I, I do. I ran the ranch. It's mine. So, um, but I have, now. yeah, but I have um, a very good foreman that was trained with my father. So at the beginning, I was much more hands on. But now that there's a rhythm and everything, it's it's um, he runs the operation and I oversee. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's uh, I think it's, you know, my family's been doing this for 200 years. So it's in your blood in a way you, you, you just have an instinct for it. What's the third object you wanted to talk about? Well, I'm into um, geodes and stones right now. I'm like having a real moment about it. And I just bought this tourmaline and I thought of bringing it because I do think that stones have certain energy and there can be a, a healing aspect to them. Uh, maybe it's uh, very, you know, self uh, I don't know, believe it, but whatever it takes to like <laughs> to move you forward, I'll take it. And the, and I find that nature is so beautiful and so um, magical that I, I don't think I can ever make anything as beautiful or anyone can ever do anything as beautiful as nature. And I get all my colors from nature and I find that I, I find a design more balanced when the colors come from more na natural references. So this one is really beautiful and it has three colors, purple, pink and green. And Where did you, you find this tourmaline stone? eBay. eBay, I spend a lot of time, that's my hobby, <laughs> looking at stones. And there's, they're magical. Some of them you think it's this from this planet. And, I, and also that's the other thing, it brings me back to earth, you know, to, to the place that we have and how lucky we are to be here. Do you keep them around the house? Yeah, I have one. I just got one. Um, obviously, maybe this is self-suggestion, you know, but I got this fluorite um, that it's light blue. And apparently fluorite helps with your thoughts, with, you know, cleansing your thoughts. And uh, I put it next to my bed when I sleep. And uh, actually, I've been having very good dreams. <laughs> so Must work. it's, it's working. Yeah. Whatever works. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and you're and you're married to Austin Hurst, who's yeah. the grandson of William Randolph Hurst, yes. which is a very uh, grand and famous family with a huge history, especially in America. How did you guys meet? We met in Argentina, actually, um, in early 2003, 2004. And so we knew each other for a while till we um, till we got together in 2010. So, yeah. And uh, he's he's amazing. He's uh, the most um, unique person I've ever met and he he taught me so much about myself you know and let, and he when you meet people that um they love you and, and you love them but more especially 
when they are able to just like, you know, I, I've always tried to, I guess, because my mother was so eccentric that I always tried to, to act normal. And he was like, you know, you're not, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just be, should be you. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was very, he was very much um, part of m my vision crystallizing. And he's a huge believer in what I do, which sometimes he believes even more than I do. And I think that his confidence has really, you know, allowed me to grow. Because he's quite experienced in business. He's so quite he experienced. you a lot in that side of things. Yeah. yeah, and he's also very creative. And also in the same way that um, I grew up in a ranch and I intuitively I all know about wool and sheep and cow. He grew up in, in a media and in a corporation. So he he knows about stories and what he's the one that pushing me about, you know, for me, gauchos and wool and horses and cows was normal. And for him, for him, it's like, no, this is like your story, you should tell people. And that's he pushed the concept too of using the wool from the ranch for the clothing, because I was like, they are two different businesses. One is at the beginning and the other one is at the end. And it's like, Gabby, <laughs> people do not know where things come from. Like you have to start making those connections because, you know, you know them because you come from the land. But the majority of it, there's people that are not making those connections nowadays. Yeah. So, yeah. And his I love that story that his there's a in your store on Madison mm -hmm. Avenue, there's a framed Quilt. quilt by his great grandmother or his, his great grandmother yeah. on the hanging and which his great grandmother people don't um, know about this because people talk about his his grandfather but his grandfather wouldn't have been who he was if it wasn't for for Phoebe Apperson Hearst and George Hearst which was the actual Hearst that started the you know the, the, I guess the first he discovered, uh, talking about minerals, he discovered some of the biggest uh, silver and gold mines in the, in, the, um, in the West, in the United States. He was a farmer from Missouri with a Scottish background. And, uh, and so he became, uh, he was a self-made man, George Hurst, and he actually bought the ranch that San Simeon and his, his wife was so, um, she was also from Missouri, was so passionate about education and PTA and was uh, one of the promoted women's vote and like very, very forward thinking at uh, the turn of the century. And she did that quilt by hand, um, all, all with leftover fabric. So it's like the most beautiful piece of art that you can see at the same time. So this is, and it's a, a store that you opened last year, 2000. Yeah, we opened in November. It's 2018. Like, so just a yeah, few months ago, yeah. in fact, um, and it kind of, is uh, the quilt you're talking about and the store very much represents uh, your ethos and your approach to designing, yeah. especially um, with regards to sustainability. Can you tell mm. us a bit about how, what, it, how you use recycled materials yeah. and so on? So the store was always part of the manifestation of the dream, right? We always knew we wanted to, to open a store because we knew that type of product needed a store. And we spent a really good year and a half trying to find the location. And when finally the location next to the Carlisle opened up, we thought, okay, this is the right spot. And then we had three basic ideas that we wanted for the store. One, I want it to be completely sustainable because I don't want the fact that we are opening the store, creating more, you know, just because we wanted to open a store, the environment doesn't have to suffer. So sustainability and, and the things that we did to approach and our architect was very passionate about it as well. So it helps when two people are passionate about it. Who is now, your architect? Sair 
yeah, you've seen him around yeah. here. Yes, <laughs> he's wonderful. And then he had opened a lot of luxury stores before, but never with the commitment to craftsmanship that we have. And we actually brought craftsmen from Italy to work on the store. So everything, all most of the stuff you've, the materials you used, recycled. Yeah, and uh, in the the wood is all recycled. Um, the uh, Every single, there's no synthetic fabrics in the whole store. The lighting is all efficient. The, uh, no, it's, you see it when you experience it. It's like the craft is really, really beautiful. Um, and so the sustainability one. Then the other aspect, I didn't want it to be intimidating. As I've been, you know, going through different stores and talking to our clients, I realized that a lot of people sometimes felt very intimidated in um, in luxury stores and, you know, there's the security guard and it, this always feels a bit, I wanted people to feel welcome. And then um, number three was... So how, does it, how do you make people feel welcome? I, I warmth, you know, I bring my Latin charm <laughs> yeah. to the table. I made this huge sofa where uh, in the, and the, it, there's, there's no mannequins in the store. There is no a window displays. It's very transparent. This is a huge door to Madison. And I put a U sofa. All I knew from the first idea was like, I knew the floor I wanted and how I want a huge U sofa. I wanted people to sit down. And obviously it's like white cashmere. So. <laughs> Some people are like, it's not funny to see the psychology. So that makes it very warm. And then you have to have a great team as well. And nothing gets done without a great team. And we have an ace team in the mm -hmm. store that's really welcoming and, 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 and warm and inviting and curious. And, you know, the, the sense of service is a, it's a passion and some people have it. And so you have to make sure that the human component is there and in that aspect. And then the third thing was to really explain our take on luxury in that mm -hmm. store, which is, which is different from others. Yeah. You know? How is it? So you're often, this, this often comes up in association mm -hmm. with your name that you represent luxury in the modern sense of the word. And what's your take on it? I, I think first, I, I don't think it's um, too, it's not ostentatious. I think it's about um, really uh, looking in the second level where you see the true quality. It's not about standing out too much, but it's about it being interesting. So I'm much more interesting interested in seducing than just like craving attention in a way and so that's what i want to achieve with all the pieces that we make you know sometimes we fail but the main goal is to like really make people desire it and then by desiring it they learn everything else that we're trying to 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 do and say what else do you want to put into the cabinet at five carlos place um what else did in the the little objects yes oh because i didn't we didn't talk about my tipa bag yeah well, that's a good thing to talk about in relation to sustainability to, yeah. see so we are, have a goal that by april 2019 um just a few months from now all our packaging is going to be biodegradable and especially the packaging that clients don't see is how we ship the product from italy to the us and to europe and so Tipa is a, a material that we, we've been using a company founded by these two Israeli mothers that spent seven years doing the research and development where it actually is flexible packaging that biodegrades in 24 weeks versus 500 years, which is a huge So plus. normal packaging takes 500 years to, to biodegrade, yeah, plastic. Tipa yeah. packaging takes 
24 weeks. weeks. You throw it with your fruits and your vegetables and it decomposes. No, it's and, amazing. And you have it here, this bag, mm. and it looks just like a normal yeah. plastic sandwich bag. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. then what amazing. we developed, so we have all the, we already had this, uh, which is the, for all our knitwear was already being shipped. So it's it's kind of a bigger bag that um, adapts itself three times, three sizes. So, and that's compostable. But the one that we designed and developed that hopefully other designers can, can use it too, is, um, is, the, is the garment bag, you know, the transparent one that yeah. everyone's, anything that's hanging comes with that transparent uh, garment bag. And so that we did, um, we developed with TIPA. So now that mold is done, so everybody else can use it. They can just put their logo. Amazing. Yeah, it's exciting. And then we switched to cardboard, recycled cardboard hangers instead of the plastic hangers because all hangers go to landfills. They don't, they don't go anywhere else. They're not, they, don't, they don't get recycled. And let's talk about the aesthetic of your brand as well. <laughs> yes. Um, so I know you, you commissioned Peter Miles, who's a very um, famous graphic designer to design your logo. And he's famous for doing the logos of Celine. Mark Jacobs. Mark Jacobs. Um, and I was wondering where this how you developed this aesthetic, where it came from? Well, I, I knew I wanted to, when we were launching GH, you know, we met with a lot of different branding people and Peter shows up with nothing to sell. <laughs> and it was like, he was like, <laughs> and I knew I wanted to work with him, you know, cause he, he thinks in a very common, like common sense matter and like much more, I don't know if common sense is the right word. He thinks in a much more, he, not grandiose, he thinks grounding and evolving in a very organic way. That's what I was trying to say. And he, he, he challenges me because he's so um, passionate about certain standards that and not to be not to do any shortcuts. So it's always that precision that I admire. And I actually convince him to work with me because he's like he's he's a very small operation with his assistant and he doesn't take more clients than he can handle and give an excellent um, work. So I was like, we're going to work together and we're not going to be friends. <laughs> <laughs> so it happened. And you commissioned Camilla Nickerson as well to style your show, yes. I think, the spring, summer 2019. Oh, yes. We started working with her and it's, you know, uh, one, it's such an honor to work with, with um, talent like her. And, you know, she's such a professional and hard worker and everything you can admire through a creative talent that you're like, she has it. What, what's it like when you commission someone like Camilla Nickerson, who's a really um, well-regarded stylist to, I'm quite interested to know when, when you, because um, you design the clothes mm -hmm. and then seeing them through the prism of someone else's style, I love how it. does that work? I, I, I love it because I, you become so close to it that I, I love, it's like going to therapy. I, I like the uh, the other interpretation. I don't think you can be very objective with yourself. So I like I like the take that she takes and I'm always very interested in that collaboration process of what she does. And the she's, you know, I mean, in a good way, I, I don't have so much history about like I didn't really know everything Peter had done after I started working with him. Like I intuitively and Camila I wasn't I was aware of her name because a lot of but I just meet these people and I, I can feel how I have one talent, which is I can spot quality quite easily. And I and I could see how and it was it's been an honor that, you know, to work with her because it's just like you can see all the history and all the 
all the amazing um, experience that she has. Did she, she do stuff with your clothing that you didn't hadn't thought of yourself? Yeah, she like I had we had this pleated the first look um, on the runways. This I I sketched this dress that we didn't. It looked like an evening out, but it's actually made out of poplin. And it's an ivory, and there was an, a navy one there, which was the same length. So she kind of, the navy one, she cut it like on the knee length and then put a second skirt. I would have never done that. And she put a belt. Like, it's just like her way of thinking is just different from, from mine, but they pair each other very, very good. And I think that, you know, that's when it works really well. Yeah. What's your final object? My final object is my sage. This one's given by my best friend. That's the same one that gave me my charms. Um, I like burning sage. I like how it smells, um, you know, changing the vibe. (laughs) So you burn, so you light it. And then you go. And you walk around the room holding it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it smells nice. And and what is it? Is it calming? The smell is very calming and uh, it just changes a bit the atmosphere. Do you use it in your store? Yeah. They love when I burn the sage in the store. Do you use it at home as well? Yeah. I use it most in professional. At home, I can control the vibe quite. I know yeah. the people that live with yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> and what And what else? So you've got your sage. So that's all the objects now. Yeah, yeah. we've got them all. What else? So before we finish, what are you planning? I read somewhere that you're planning to open a store in London. Is that true? Yeah, we're looking into London and, and Hong Kong and we're looking to, you know, it's about the right space with the right. By now, you you can tell I have an esoteric side of myself. Yeah. So it's all about that yeah. intuition and where the place is right. And, you know, intuition is like basically it's your brain trying to it pa- find patterns really and you don't consciously understand what it is, what these patterns are, but it's like your intuition is basically your brain processing information. So I need to experience and see places and kind of understand. I knew, for example, in New York, in the area, why it took us so long, because I knew exactly the two blocks I wanted to to open with, and that doesn't give you a lot of range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And are you planning to do open to design any more categories that you've got your clothing and shoes, bags? Jewelry, anything yeah. else? What else can you go into? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, as long as I can find good craftsmanship that can do the things I, I, I envision and then I can really manifest them to close to that vision, I think that um, I'm open to. But in a way, you know, it's, it's we, we grow organically. We don't, uh, we really control our growth. We don't over, uh, we are very careful with overexposure. We don't over, um, we have the same retail partners for the past year and a half. We don't increase our retail partners. We're we're really much more about doing it right and long term. I, I love what I do. I wanted to do it for a long time. So pacing myself is a good yeah. thing. Okay. Well that's great. Thank you so much yeah, for talking thank you. to us. Thanks. Thank you. That was an episode of the Collector's House, a matches fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website. And you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.